Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host. I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week. Therefore, it's another episode. How you all doing? Good, 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 good. I've got a great guest for you today. Uh, his name's Phil Thornley, and uh, he's a producer, a musician, mixer. I mean, we, we touch on a few things uh, that, that, that he'd done in the sort of more formative years of his career. We talk about his work with The Cure. We talk about his work with XTC. And uh, honestly, the, the, this, this guy's story is fantastic. Uh, and he's got new music out at the moment, uh, the new single Fast Cars out. Um, but yeah, you're in for a real treat today. Phil's an uh, absolutely delightful uh, human being, and we have a lovely, lovely natter. If it's your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, hello, how are you? We're 450 episodes in. Where you been? It's all right. It's all right. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's a nice party. You're welcome. Pop your shoes off at the door and come in. Um, let me tell you what you've missed. You missed a lot. You've missed episodes with, uh, blimey, who can we talk about? Uh, producers. I mean, speaking of producers, we also, also, I won't say too much, but Phil talks about, you know, his first job with Mickey Most. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it's some story, this. Um, but yeah, if you like your producers, I've had Butch Vig on. Butch Vig produced uh, Nevermind for... For Nirvana, I think that done all right. Um, he's produced Sonic Youth, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, and obviously he's a, a, a member of Garbage. Um, producer Fatboy Slim, Norman Cook. That's a wonderful chat. Um, and yeah, you know, I've had pop stars like Aharon. I've had Absolute Indie Gold like Interpol, Kaiser Chiefs, Kooks, The Killers. They've all been on. Big rock and rollers like Mastodon, uh, Motley Crue, uh, who else? Foo Fighters, did I say them? Um, yeah, Stacks. Stacks and Stacks. Enter Shikari. Uh, go, go and explore because I've had loads of amazing um, actors on as well and, and DJs, comedians, a real who's who. And you can listen to them all for free. Now then, what I also want to tell you about is... Once you've exhausted all of that, and there's a lot, you also get extra content and you can support the podcast by heading over to my Patreon. Uh, and it costs you a uh, dollar a month. So I think it works out about 18p a week. And I put up all the videos so you can watch all the episodes over there. Um, I put radio shows up over there where I play songs and talk about them like I don't know why I felt like I needed to explain to you what a radio show is there. Um, I put up lots of playlists uh, and all sorts of bits and pieces. But the main thing that, that started to happen now is I'm doing live shows online. And so you patrons can come along and I'm actually doing the, I'm, I'm recording this on, on the 1st of September and I'm doing the first one this evening. Uh, and so what we do is we send out the Zoom link to all the patrons and they'll jump on. And on tonight's episode, we're going to talk about intros. So everybody can come along and we can talk about their favourite intros and just have a, a nerdy natter, really. Um, and so I'll be doing that each month. So you get to come along to them and, and <coughs> excuse me, 
and I'll be recording them and putting them out as well. Uh, so you get to hear yourself on an episode of Off the Beaten Track. Uh, yeah, and you can find out about that at um, Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com forward slash Off the Beat and Track. Um, and if you need to find out about back catalogue, um, which you can find in anywhere you get podcasts, we're, we're, we're everywhere. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook. I say we, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search Off the Beat and Track podcast, it'll pop up. Um, give us a follow, a like, love, share, a retweet, and all of that. Uh, and yeah, and there's a one stop shop for everything I've just mentioned, which is Off the Beat and Track Podcast.com. Anyway, please enjoy today's wonderful episode with Phil. Sorry, ladies and gents, I've just got to jump in quickly and tell you that this podcast is proud to be in partnership with Hotel Chocolat. That's right. Hotel Chocolat, those people that make all the delicious chocolatey stuff, right? They have been my partner now for close to two years, and I can't thank them enough. Um, and one way that I can kind of help them is by telling all you lot about what they're up to. You know all about the chocolate stuff because you, you go and get your chocolates from there. But some of you like a little tipple of booze, right? So if you do, you need to check out their velvetized cream range. So what they've done is they've got loads of all your favourite spirits and then they've added their lovely chocolatey magic-y stuff to it. So you can get like, uh, my favourite's the mint chocolate one. Go check out their mint chocolate velvetized cream because it is delicious. The salty caramel one will blow your socks off as well. There's loads. You need to go and check out uh, the alcohol range that um, Hotel Chocolat do. And I'm proud to tell you that this podcast is in partnership with Hotel Chocolat. Go check them out. But right now, get back to the podcast. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It's me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. Phil, how are you today? I am over the moon. I've got a new album coming out tomorrow. And um, I couldn't be happier with it. Um, my record company are happy with it. My family are happy. Everyone's overjoyed. We're just waiting for someone to buy it. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, before, um, before we get into the, 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 the track listing, tell me about how difficult you found it picking these songs. Uh, if at a couple all. Of the, a couple of the questions, uh, it was a couple of the requests. I was like, especially the intro mm-hmm. the intro which was your introductory question i was like i was like this and i was like that and i changed my mind and then i thought about it and then i thought yeah but and then you hear something else and you go no that's actually way cooler so um but some of them are like cast iron okay. they're just like i cannot move from i won't give my choices away just yet but there are a couple where you just go like that was just like a deal breaker. Yeah. You know, it, it made my, I heard it, my heart stopped and my life went off in a different direction from the moment I heard that song. Wonderful. That's the, that's the power of music, isn't it? Absolutely. That it can just elevate, you know, it's, 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 it's a word I like to use. Cause I like kind of, um, my main decade was the seventies and I was kind of like transcendental because you hear the music and it transports you to that. You're like 12 years old with a crappy Spanish guitar, trying to learn how to play F and then you hear dark side of the moon and you go, wow, you know, and you, th- and it takes you to another place and you go, I really want to learn how to get there. Yeah. I don't know if I can hang around when I get there, but I want to learn how they, how, these people managed to make this magic happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk intros and you can, you can talk me through some of the ones that almost made it. And, uh, uh as well, if you'd like, I'll let you have some honorable mentions there. Honorable um, mentions. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, go on. What, what, you, what is, uh, the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, Phil? The greatest ever intro this week is, um, <laughs> is, um today. It's a shame by the spinners, oh, which is which, which is kind of um, well. You obviously know it, like the Mo. I think it's um, the Funk Brothers. You know the Motown yeah. house band. I don't know that for a fact. I think you're right. 
but but um I mean, regardless of the fact that the record, this guy, the singer is just like amazing. And you hear the first minute, and you go like, oh, he's okay. And then he just goes up the octave and it explodes into this other thing. But the on the intro, um, for anybody who hasn't heard it, there's like Motown tends to use three guitarists and they'd all do different, um, have different tasks. And on this intro, it's just like two of the guitarists and they're so accurate. It's like so deadly. It's melodic. It's groovy. It's exciting. And, and also as a musician, it's like to play with that kind of groove and accuracy. You can imagine the red light goes on the studio and those guys are just like put the fag down or whatever they might have been smoking and and just the the, the the arranger counts it off and they start playing like these days you kind of in modern recording with pro tools or whatnot you you have a guy looping that thing for 20 bars before they nailed it and these guys probably just were just like yep i got this yeah. and uh, it's on a different level um to me so so for for this week it's a shame by the spinners. Wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to intros, like it, it always sort of fascinates me what what guests come with because some people will go for, you know, something like Floyd, something that's literally you know a, a, a ten minute intro, uh, and and then you'll get somebody that just go, oh, uh, Beatles help, and uh, which is like yeah. bang straight in, and like, uh, and so yeah. I'm always kind of curious as to as. As to what people are going to sort of bring to the table and what sort of angle they're going to go at, and I think you know, to, to as I mentioned there, like "Help" by the Beatles, these you know two-minute perfect pop songs. Essentially, that was what what Berry Gordy and Motown was doing as well, wasn't it? Just perfect yeah. pop records. Uh, I had a. Um, I was lucky enough when I was eighteen. I went to work for a record producer who's not known as well as Barry Gordy, but his name was Mickey Most. And in the 60s and the 70s. He's a legend. He is. A, well, he is a legend, a legend, but some people don't know his name anymore. Mm. And um, he would have that kind of, if he listened to a demo of an artist, he wouldn't wait for the chorus. He just like the first 20 seconds, flip it out, cassette or whatever. Like if you haven't got the vibe, is, is if you're not... You know, we talk about Floyd, so they might have a 10-minute intro, but from the moment you put it on, you go, oh, hang on, what's going on here? Cool sounds. Help. You know, like, bang, let's get on with it. There's so many, but it's a great opportunity, an intro. People can be so lazy, songwriters, are just going like, oh, I'll just use the four bars from the start of the chorus um, instrumentally, or, and you don't, and you don't, it's like a, it's a fanfare. It's an opportunity to kind of get everyone, especially if you're at a, 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 a party or a disco, you know, you hear the first three bars of September by Earth, Wind and Fire and they're like, come on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a call. It's the calling card. It's, it's, uh, it's so important to me. Um, and, and then that's another interesting thing. You, you just instantly put that in in a kind of uh, in, in a club environment, and it and then the whole kind of because again with intros and, and DJs, there's there's you know if you go to the, you know you look at things like the Wigan Casino where the you know DJs weren't mixing, they were telling you what they're about to play. Then they play these incredible you know soul records that in an instant you know you, you'd you'd be dancing and for personally like. Uh, I, Michael Jackson's "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough" for me, that uh, intro. Yeah. If I'm at and I'm at a party or something, if that comes on, I'm dancing with that. It's just so infectious. But then you look at sort of the way that you know dance music's moved now. That record companies that you know get artists to to record specific remixes or you know extended versions where them intros are longer so they're dj friendly so djs can mix them as well i think it's fascinating like you know the 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 ways that you know intros are are used and can affect you know the art of of of, of writing and and with that in mind uh phil i'm going to ask you 
when you are writing, you know, you, you touched on the seventies there, and and you know, as, as I was born in the seventies, but kind of I would say my my, my music loving. You know, and my formative years of music would have definitely been the early '80s and, and and onwards, and like with the '70s, it was vinyl and you know what you could afford. You know, each each week or every couple of weeks, if you could afford a single or whatever. Uh, and and then obviously, as times had changed, it was CDs, and then people would be illegally downloading you know music uh, from Napsters and LimeWires and such. And and now we see a world where within a split second, whether it's on your phone, on your computer, or you, you've got the world's music there in an instant. Now, right. there, there's there's a good and a bad side to that. And, you know, but with all of that in mind, I think it goes back to what you were saying about Mickey Mouse, where you've got 20 seconds to get that vibe because now everybody's saturated in it. Yeah. And it's- so... And I wonder how that affects your creative process, if it does at all. Um, I would say that um, you're certainly being aware that I think there are something like 10,000 songs released every day now. Is that what it is? I don't, it's, it's something like really distressingly, you know, uh, uh, kind of not distressing, maybe overwhelming because mm. you go, I'm, I'm releasing my song and there's – you know, um, 9,999 others competing for the first 10 seconds, 20 seconds of our, you know, our customers, people out there listening, you know, please like me, please like me. Um, But with writing, um, I would say, I don't know what it is. You just kind of go, um, try to gravitate towards something that the, the only honest opinion you can have is your own. You can't second guess anybody else. You can't, you could listen to 10 records and go, we could do an intro like that or like that one, or we could do this, or we could do that. But it's ultimately um, when it, and this is the same for the rest of the song and the production as the creator, if I'm the songwriter uh, or the producer, you've got to love it. You you really just got to go. Oh, I love this man. This is just rocking my world. Because if it doesn't rock your world, how can you expect it to get break through the other ten thousand? Yeah. If you don't, and and it probably won't anyway. But at least there's a good starting point yeah. to go. I I feel really good. I feel like this is funny. I feel like this is catchy. I feel like this is punchy. Could be any of those things. That uh, you know that make you go like yeah that's pretty cool that's a cool way to start a record and it could just be like a drum fill but if it's like a cool drum fill then um, I'm in Absolutely. you know at least you it turn turns your head yeah um Phil tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you yeah um, emotional I know. Um, the first record that I heard that I went that I had a I had an aunt who some people might have this phenomenon where they have an aunt who's only a bit like five or six year old years yeah. older. So I had a young aunt, Aunt Judy, and this was in the sixties. So she was obviously crazy for the Beatles, and she, the uh, Beatles um, had an EP. It was a Twist and Shout EP. Now remember, they didn't put their singles on the albums. They were like extra extra how much talent did they have um but when i heard twist and shout at whatever age i was six or seven um this might have been like a year or two after it came out but she played it to me and i was just like i just you know the sound i realize now you hear that was the end they were recording the album it was the last song of the day lennon's voice had gone you hear all these details but but I know as a kid, I was just like, I guess that's when I thought that was maybe the first rock and roll record that I heard where you go like that attitude is a great tune, but the playing and the attitude to me is like, it's still absolutely golden. You just hear these guys going for it and they're loving it and they're giving everything and vo- Lennon's voice is going and all those, the stacking of the harmonies where George and, and Paul are joining in. 
and you, it's it's just overwhelming the excitement to to me you know beyond any Ed Sheeran record any ABBA record any classical record to me no no one could touch the kind the electricity of electricity is almost like that's too dull a word it's 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 transcendental it's like fucking hell god is in this came into that studio and now oh you know i just yeah so every time i hear that you go um and they're doing it in one take yeah they're playing it off the floor and george is doing his solo and i mean yeah so that for me is the uh that was the big punch yeah yeah i reckon they're gonna do all right that band of beatles mate well the jury's out you know <laughs> Yeah, give it, give, it, give it another 57 years. Uh, um, yeah. Phil, pinpoint me the emotion. What was it? I guess that would be excitement. Yeah. And not knowing, um, not knowing, uh, I, my parents didn't play music much in the house. There might be the an odd Sinatra record or, or about Bacharach, something, you know, nice records. But it wasn't, um, the radio wasn't on. So um, I guess when I heard it, it was sort of like, you know, someone coming, a Martian arriving and hearing music for the first time. And, you know, like his body's moving, he's tapping his three-toed foot. And, you know, that's what, that's the effect it had on me. Yeah. In later years, and I think that's when I started my... um, my love of music but also my desire to be to learn it to learn about it you know tell me about the song that reminds you of your time at school please okay now i uh, at school so i was at school from the late 60s through the 70s now in the 70s there was this band who not many people have heard of again like the beatles called pink floyd uh, and um in our school band, we, uh, I, I was the kind of guitarist and um, harmony singer and the kind of arranger, I would ask. But um, so Us and Them was to- the song Us and Them. Not only um, musically, it's, pr- it's so cool and the sounds are cool, but the lyric, you know, Roger Waters' lyrics are. You know, people would always poke fun at that and go like, "Oh, it's sixth form poetry because it's, it's, it's basically kind of people talking about people who have and people who have not." In in so in very broad strokes, um, but I think when you're like fourteen or fifteen, it's uh, if it it had that kind of um, that whenever I think of us and them, I go back to the the big canteen the school canteen where we actually did a concert but most of the time it was just the dinner canteen yeah that's where you went what used to be called dinner is now called lunch Mm -hmm. that's where that's where you went and um so yeah us and them i'm back in that canteen and um probably worrying about what the next chord change is in some small part but us and them has got some like really beautiful chords yeah the the, the, um you know that our people often talk about dave gilmore and roger waters but not so often about rick wright who was the keyboard player um and who came was bought a jazzy kind of element which you can hear on us and them some Mm. pretty rich chords and some some i guess what i might call some hip changes yeah um and again, it's that transcendental thing. You kind of go, it gets me, it gets still, I would still hear that and go like, cool. You know, I would nod my head without any, you know, alcohol or, or spliff or anything. That, that do, and then I'm back, I'm 14 again. Nice. When, when you was 14 uh, and at school, where was that? Where did you grow up? I grew up in West Suffolk which is um it's kind of like the wild west there's it's it's like dusty flat um nothing happens except for the occasional gunfight 
Um, no, it's a pretty sleepy, pretty sleepy part of town. You know, main, mainly, um, you know, sleepy part of the country, rural. You know, my my dad was a farmer. His dad was a farmer. My brother was a farmer, and so I came from a farming community, and which a lot of pe- a lot of people did work on the land then. Um, I know that sounds really kind of like you suddenly see in black and white photos and scratchy records, but it was like that. That's that's how it was. It wasn't that long ago when um, you know a farm would employ. A small farm would employ five people, you know. Now that, that's all gone. It, yeah. You know, it's all obviously like everything. It's it's um, done better by a machine. But so, but that's just setting the scene. That's where I, where I grew up. We were pretty. Uh, I guess some people call us hicks, you know, or yeah. So pretty. So how how did that transition from hick to rock and roller? kind of happen like you mentioned that you was in in like a, a band at school and was yeah. that was that that sort of thing with the arts and, and music was that encouraged at your school uh no no i i mean i had a great art teacher who if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, it was you know everybody talks about their favorite teacher, and he he really encouraged me. I felt like this. I was rejected for the choir, rejected as a, as a musician because I I couldn't read, um, and uh, I didn't have any of those. I guess I had, uh, I had, I must have had this musical ability, but, but it wasn't until I was in the sixth form where somebody said, Oh, you know, that, I guess that kid Phil, he's, he's because I was making my own way, teaching myself guitar, piano, or whatnot. But, um, no, I, I was lucky enough to live, uh, next to an Italian American family who were all musical. So that's where I kind of, um, that's where I learned my music from. My art teacher encouraged me to be creative. So um, did it, I can't remember where we started out, but. Um, did it, did it seem possible? Yeah. Like, um, because one of the reasons I set this podcast up initially was, was, was to base it on certain areas and, and, and that kind of what I think now is a myth that, um, you know, if you wanted to make it in music or in TV, you, you know, you have to go to London. You know, you can't you can't live in Essex and, and, and be successful. You can't live in Liverpool or Manchester and be successful. You know, you've got to, you got to move to London. 
living in in West uh, Suffolk, like, yeah. did it seem like, well, if I want to succeed in music, I can do that here. Like, tell me about, you know, like, wh- where did it start to get momentum as 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 it be, being something where you thought, well, this could be a career, and uh, and and tell me that kind of transition point from from having uh, that initial thoughts of like, well, can I do that living in Suffolk? Well, I, it was the dream, you know. Uh, I mean, they, in America, it's called the American Dream. You, where I was by the time I was fourteen, I had this one particular record, and it wasn't about making it in music then it was just i loved it and i taught myself with the help of my friends um i was really uh, quite quite um self-motivated like i would just disappear at school with break time to go and play the to try and learn how to play a piano um and i think uh, luckily my mum could see that i was just like obsessed uh, with music and and sadly coming back to what you your question she knew someone who knew someone who worked at the bbc who knew someone that managed a studio in northwest london so uh i finished school i'd gone for an interview to be you know a t-board this position doesn't exist anymore but you'd know it like a tape op an assistant engineer and um and I got and I got a job. So I, I was I was one in a hundred people who would have applied for that. And I went to London and lived in a bedsit in Kentish Town. So and it was it was re, you know it was pretty lonely for a long while. But um, it was like it was like being thrown at the deep end. I went from playing you know with my mates in a punk band. I was also in a soul band. And, you know, picking up a little bit of cash here and there to suddenly like working hours and hours with great producers like Mickey Most, seeing session players, being part of the process, recording pop records, orchestras and whatnot. So it was like being a cliche thrown in at the deep end. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I was, I guess there was at that time, there was no way I could have made a career in music in West Suffolk. Now, uh, it is it is completely different. For a start, there are no very few of these big studios left. There used to be 100 in London. Now there's probably five. Yeah. Um, and the whole creation, you know, making an album on your laptop, if you don't know how to do something, go onto YouTube, you can be sure somebody will be there to offer some advice on how to play a chord how to record a vocal how to do a mix it's all that isn't it it's all there yeah so so you can now do it from um a bedroom in west suffolk but um but then but but back in uh, 1978 no way tell i mean what a good time to be in london tell tell me and, and certainly sort of kentish town and stuff like tell me tell me a little bit about you know, maybe 78, 79, you know, you touched on using a punk band. Like, I, I mean, was there anywhere more exciting to be involved with live music than in London in 1979? I mean, tell me about, you know, as much as we, we've spoke about the, the, the beauty of, of, of the chords and such that, that Floyd were doing then, the complete anti-Floyd would have been what was happening in London then, like a few years after that. And tell me how that impacted on you, on you. Well, uh, the sad truth is that I worked so many hours at the studio that the only uh, the the um, exposure I had to modern music uh, of the time that the, the uh, would be if the band making that music got signed and came in to make an album, Susie and the Banshees. So I was the tape up on their first album. Wow. Um, yeah, and the, the jam. I was the tape up on all mod cons. Fucking uh, hell, really? Yeah. How so, exciting. Yeah, and I have to say, so in, 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 I was living in Kentish Town, in northwest London, and, um, but I wasn't going out because we'd work, come in at 10 o'clock in the morning and you'd mm. work to midnight to 4 o'clock in the morning. 
and which was a great way to learn because you're doing those 10,000 hours. You're just like, you're recording pop, you're recording middle of the road, you're recording punk. You, you just go like, oh, I, I keep watching the producer, see what he's doing, what decisions he's making. So actually going to see a band was quite a rare occurrence because the social life was was um, non-existent. Sure. And that, but, but it didn't bother me. You know, um, I realized later that it damaged me, but, you know, um, it's p- p- partly tongue in cheek. But um, I would go and see the jam, you know, be, um, they were just so thrilling as a live band. Yeah. And, you know, musically were right on it. And I saw, you know, I went to festivals like um, Rock Against Racism and some of those bands you'd see, like, I saw The Clash and I, I didn't have that much nous about music, but I just thought, nah, these guys don't sound as good as the record. Mm. Or, uh, they, there seems to be an attitude, which is fine, but it's like so way off from the cool records that they made. Whereas the jam, you went to see them live and you're like, wow, they could really play. They delivered. It was everything. Um, and meanwhile, I would probably also be going to see, um, what would be considered NAF acts like Hall and Oates. And because I'm sort of like, that's, I, I'm lucky enough to have enjoyed lots of different types of music, but at heart, I'm, I, I, I do kind of gravitate to a bit of blue eyed soul. Oh, there is nothing uncool <laughs> about Hall and Oates. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a band. Um, yeah. And they've they've been I think they've been reissuing stuff recently and uh, it, it was it was I got close to having Daryl Horn the podcast and uh, which would have been a, a dream come true and I mean for for that sort of blue eyed soul scene as well I mean Hall and Oates I mean I'd I'd love to know the amount of money they have made through people sampling their records because some of yeah. the biggest hip hop records are absolutely yeah. flooded with. Uh, I don't go for that. Oh my god! Like, yeah, what a what a groove! Oh, unbelievable! And, and unbelievable. that's all. Um, I I ended up playing with Mickey Curry, who was the drummer in Hall and Oates for four or five years, because he was in Brian Adams' band, amazing drum. But I would go like, Mickey, Mickey, tell me about because you were on that album, and of course that's a drum machine. And he's like he was with the guy when he's programming it, but the bass line and everything—that's Daryl. Yeah. That's just, what an amazing set! His voice is still fantastic. I'm like you. I got, I I did meet him once um, about mixing an album and said some very kind of said all the wrong things. So I never got that. But um, yeah, he, he's still got that voice and that attitude. And and uh, oh yeah, I'd, what an I'd, artist! I'd recommend to any listeners. Uh... That, that haven't checked out Hall and Oates already, then 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 do so. But there's a, a wonderful series on YouTube. I think it's called Daryl's House, where he's got this yes. beautiful barn, hasn't he? Uh, yeah. And and just some of uh, an incredible bunch of musicians in there. Uh, and he has certain guests in, and there's there's a there's one where he has uh, the 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 band Chromio in, and uh, and they've they've got the vocoder, and uh, and they do. Uh, I can't go for that, but. If you just put in Daryl's house, search that and search Family Man. The version right. they do of Family Man is absolutely wonderful. That's my recommendation today, listeners. That uh, go right. go get stuck into Hall and Oates. But what I want to ask you uh, is the first record you remember buying from a record store. So this is, I think, people will think I'm bullshitting because this is so cool. You can't have a cool one. It's, it's against the rules. You can't have a it's, cool one for this one. It's <laughs> so cool. And it's so like a producer to, to buy Isaac Hayes theme from Shaft. Right. You, you've, you, no, you've, you've chose the coolest one that you could have. Uh, I've done 453 episodes of this podcast now. That's the coolest record for this. It really is. I think you've won. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, you say you say that to all your guests. I know you. Uh, now, but anybody that um, I didn't know why I particularly uh, obviously it's got like a wah wah, and it's heavily 
arranged people might think oh these guys are jamming in the studio but they're not like isaac hayes would have written out all the parts the drum you know the bass part the orchestra you come in here you come in there it'd all be heavily scored um because he probably had three hours to do it i would imagine and so people in those days tended to be uh but yeah what when i was like whatever 11 or 12 might even have been before that yeah just hearing that the wah wah going yeah and there's um i never really paid any attention you know there's are some there is some sort of frame refrain shaft john shaft who's the biggest there's all this going on it sort of i didn't pay any attention to that i was just listening to the the tension in the music the and strings are amazing yeah those guys knew what they were doing yeah uh, um a lot you know and I guess where was he? Probably Stax Studios. Yeah, would have been those guys. You know, you often get the sense of people go, "Oh, you know, they they just turned up," but they didn't just turn up. They they're reading the dots. They're probably you know reading the music. They're probably making suggestions. Players to Isaac Hayes. Why don't I do this here? Tell me what you're going to do. Okay, that sounds cool. Go with that. Um, like real. Um, you know, maestros in their own field. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, wow, what's what's going on here? This yeah. is um yeah, so that was my thank you very much. That was my the first vinyl I ever, I ever vinyl seven inch. I'd I'd had bought an album. Cool. Uh, that was classical music. That was the planets. Okay, nice. Which is like if if anybody hears that, you'll hear the whole history of Hollywood for the last 60 or 70 years have been pinched. You know, you hear Hans Zimmer and you go, like, wow, that's amazing. And then we check out the planets and yeah. think it's quite, uh, it's for a lot of those film composers, they, they use those, um, that style. Anyway. I want to pick back up on your journey. So we, we've spoke about um, uh, working with, with, with Mickey in, his studio, in, in the studio uh in in the late 70s tell me about as we sort of move into the the 80s where your career then went um because i i'd been um mickey's assistant on a lot of sessions and one thing i learned from him he was very um very sober very focused he was only interested in hits um so i guess through you might say by osmosis i was like my art teacher, I was I was learning. This is the way you make records. Like you, 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 and he was always going on about the song. Um, meantime, I'm learning how to engineer, how to record drums, how to record um, a string section from from other people and other producers. So, because um, eventually, as you, you're the T boy, then you're an assistant. I'm assisting Mickey. Then I got a shot because they had a publish co- publishing company at the studio. Um, so they said, can you engineer the demos for these bands? And the bands would be like, might be hot chocolate. You know, like not not shitty, but some of them were shitty bands. But yeah. so you're learning um, how to deal with people. So then I'd become an engineer. And then I was often... You know, um, I was actually quite insecure, but in the studio, I could seem quite arrogant. I had a, I often would be like, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. Um, But it wasn't coming from a, um, that it wasn't coming from an arrogant place. It was like, I think this will be good. Just trust, sort of trust me. I'm a doctor. And um, so then I started getting, um, gigs as a producer or as a co-producer with a band you know there's a kind of a hierarchy and you move so you go from assistant you become an engineer if you're any good you get hired to co-produce an album if you're if you're if that ha- of course the key thing is if something has success then the record companies in those days would go well who's who's someone cheap and young or who did that record and oh, oh, i was that kid over at rack studios let's give him a this this new artist um and one thing um i guess um i used to when drum machines came in i was kind of given the drum machine given the manual 
and I had to sit there and figure out how to program it, which of net now seems like nothing. But in those days, you were like a genius. The kid knows how to, he knows how to program the drum machine. Get that kid. So I would get gigs because I could use a Lin, program a Lindrum, a DMX, all the different sounds that w- which are now, uh, if you know, Prince records or hip hop records, early ones, they would have been, um, might have been using those. So he, just because I read the first 10 pages of the manual, I started getting production gigs. I did. Because they go like that. Oh, yeah, he knows how to use drum machines. He's he's technology guy. Yeah. So, um, and then I gradually, you know, the greasy pole, I was, uh, soon enough, I came down. Who was you working with like, around about that time? So then I was, uh, so I co-produced The Cure um, around that time. That was a big, uh, big moment for me. What um, record was that? So there was an album called Pornography, yep. which is considered their, like their darkest one. Mm-hmm. But I also did Love Cats, wow. which is considered their lightest one. So I kind of did the whole, you know, the thing about I'm not taking a credit for that. They're great artists. Robert is an amazing musician and more to the point, you know, knows how to write a pop song. Um, so uh, pr- production-wise... Um, I, I was also mixing things like Thompson Twins, Duran Duran. Um, I was getting invited. I had another mentor, a producer called Alex Sadkin, who had been at Island Records. Um, so I was gradually picking up these co-production gigs, just making my way, Prefab Sprout, XTC, um, just going back to the 80s. I was just working all the time. Graham Parker. I just go from one album to the next album, and how was uh, it? What was it like in the studio of XTC? <laughs> well, um, there's the good and the bad. So um, for both times, I worked on two albums of theirs as the mixer. I never produced them; I was the mixer. Um, they were signed to Virgin Records. I think Virgin liked what what I did, but um, as was probably. Co- well known the the two principal songwriters in um xtc were uh andy partridge colin molden colin molden one of the funniest people i've ever met barely ever said anything and whenever he did say anything it just crack everyone up and he um very intense non-stop talking um one of the rare cases where he 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 was demanding not in and not in a bad way you know that's fine if i want to sound i would try and acquiesce to to his um you know whatever he requested i try and get the drums to sound the way he wanted them or but unfortunately he would always say turn the vocal down turn the vocal even though it was a great song like turn the vocal down turn the vocal down cover it in like schmooz and um my boss, Mickey Mouse, had been the opposite of that. He would sometimes like stick his head into the control room and go like, he'd point at his mouth and then point upwards, like turn the vocal up, communicate the, you know, that's basically like people want to hear the lyrics. They want to hear the melody. They might like the snare drum, but they don't want it to be louder than the singer. Um so yeah, so XCC there were um and another member, Dave Gregory, who was the chief musician. That's who I really I'm still friends with Dave. I still catch up with him. So this interesting mix of a really funny person, a, a quite demanding person, and then Dave kind of quite chilled out in yeah. Dave Gregory. Um but all bands are like that. Yeah. You find every band I ever worked with. There's usually one member of the band that you kind of chime with and you go like, uh, you have the same sense of humor or, or hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Yes. Now this is a, this is a little bit of a confession that um, I really didn't have a clubbing phase in my life. Yeah. I, I played with a soul band in clubs 
you know, we do covers of, of 70s um, soul tunes, and um, which was fantastic. But I wouldn't, by the time I was living in Northwest London working at the studio, I must have gone to, I would go to a club maybe twice a year. Yeah. And uh, I've come to dancing much later in life. I'm a very keen Friday night dancer in my own kitchen when the um, Sauvignon Blanc has been poured. Um, I know I literally, I, I do love dancing. But back in those times, um, you know, I went to some cool clubs as a guest in New York. You know, people could, would go like, oh, the Paradise something. And I go, yeah, I went there. Uh, the River Club, you know, these these kind of, um, what, what, what were they called? Like seminal clubs. Yeah. Um, but, but I would kind of visit with a friend and I, I never embraced I, I never embraced club culture. But do you think, you know, things like Paradise Garage, Paradise Garage wasn't it? Paradise I don't, Garage. I can't remember. Uh, the, yeah, oh God, was it? Um, and, and, you know, people talk about that and Mud Club and 54 and Hacienda and Wigan Casino and all of these, like, um, amazing venues. Do you think they felt amazing at the time or do you think they've been made a lot more amazing post in with that sort of nostalgia when you look back? I think uh, probably the latter. Yeah. Because, like I said, I didn't embrace club life, so I was never off my head in one of those clubs going yeah. like, this is the best night of my life. I'm dancing to this amazing music. Um, I mean, I saw, I saw Grandmaster, what was his name, Grandmaster Flash? Mm-hmm. Saw him in a club in New York, and you should be you should be going like, "Wow, that's amazing!" You know, yeah. and I was just like, "Yeah, that's quite cool." You know, I, I um, perhaps I was just too insecure, too, too 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 insecure or too uptight to, because I would be going to a club knowing the next day at midday I had to start mixing something. Yeah, you so you can't you can't go off on a trip or anything. You've um, and I don't know if I would have done anyway. I I I, I was always quite, um, you know, m- maybe, um, yeah. I wasn't one for letting my hair down, and yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I felt, yeah. So uh, as you pointed out, you know, have these clubs take it? I went to the Hacienda and saw some bands, and it just seemed like another place. Yeah, I didn't. But it wasn't – that might be really offensive to people who loved, though had fantastic nights, years in those places. But it wasn't part of my um, – it just wasn't part of me. Sure. That um, So I'm not the best person to ask because because I, I, I was touched by the sound of music, the records, and not by um, the experience of, like, clubbing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, how sad. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Well, should we go home for track six? And shall we talk? Oh, hang, did we talk about your track? What track did you choose for the clubbing? Um. My yeah. I was. Uh, I think for my idea of clubbing, like I have playlists of dance tunes, but yeah. Earth Wind, Earth Wind and Fire, September. Perfect. You know that's that's. That's or Barry White, you know, something that just makes me smile. Yeah, you know, whilst you dance, whilst you're dancing, um, I've got some great moves. By the way, it's just <laughs> just throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, I swear, I, I swear, I could have made it as a dancer, but but um, no one, no one will ever have seen me in my prime. But Barry White, oh man, you, I mean, you know, to me, that's the sound of it. The yeah, it's what a great sound. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I'm going to take you home. Favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Well, um, we've mentioned West Suffolk, uh, and the county of Suffolk in general is not renowned for its... um, What you got? We've got got a slim... We've got... Apparently Ed Sheeran went to school in Suffolk, so he's... Framlingham, wasn't it? Framlingham, yeah. Yeah. Um... 
And then Nick Kershaw from the 80s. Yeah. Lovely guy. Wrote some great songs. Wrote Wrote, some great songs. Wrote Chesney Hawks' big hit, didn't he? He had his, uh, yes, he did. Um, But I also, when I was thinking about this question, um, I know Brian Eno is from Woodbridge in Suffolk. I did not know that. Yeah, he's from, which is. Woodbridge is lovely. Well, I, I I can't remember going, but I know East Suffolk is pretty. You know, when anybody when anybody says, "Are oh, you from Suffolk?" They go, "Oh, it's so pretty," and I go, "No, no, 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 that's East Suffolk." Yeah, you've been to the nice part. When you get up to the west, it's just like flat and dusty. But um, so um, he collaborated, as many people know, with David Byrne from Talking Heads oh. on many records, and. Uh, the uh, Once in a Lifetime, I think, is credited to um, David Byrne and Brian Eno. And Brian Eno would have produced it. And I think that's him singing on the choruses for that sort of... Um, I think he has a real skill with harmony vocals. Yeah. So um, that's quite quite a... Um, that's the best that Suffolk has to offer. I mean, uh, you, you, you're welcome to that. I mean, that is amazing. And, I mean, Once in a Lifetime... I mean, that's got to be that's got to be a, a, in the running for one of the greatest intros ever. Just straight in and like that bass, yeah. Tina Weymouth. Oh, outrageous! Yeah. Outrageous! What a band! What a vibe! And the thing is, as well, with, with David Burney's, everybody, you know, when you watch "Stop Making Sense" and you, you know you watch these performances, you watch the recent uh, David Byrne um, film that he made. Like he, he, people just always sort of caught up on like his movement and but and and the songwriting within talking it is ridiculous but his voice is unreal nobody yeah, sounds like david Byrne. yeah like, he yeah he, he made that space for himself didn't he that right from uh the moment you i heard psycho killer for the first time at a gig at cambridge corn exchange which was my local kind of if a if a middling kind of band was on tour they'd come to the cambridge corn exchange so like the ramones would play there rory gallagher would play there and um and before the bands came on of course there'd be a dj and i remember hearing that and you, i mean yeah like that phrase stop you in your tracks it was like what is this yeah. you know you just don't forget it's it's and in some respects i don't know if he he made lots and lots of great music and probably still is, but Sucker Killer is just it just stands alone, doesn't it? Got that talking heads, that mean groove, the ridiculous lyrics and um and hooks. Yeah. Yeah. But and, and we talk about a time when you know, when that came out, that would have been what, seventy nine maybe? Maybe a little bit early maybe, maybe earlier. Yeah, seventy. I'd go one year earlier, yeah. And you, you think, like, that's the time, you know, when people are trying to have pop hits. That intro, that, they're, they're not jumping straight in with that. That's a slow build, and it gets more and more sinister as, as, yeah. it, as it starts yeah. to gather a bit of momentum. Wonderful yeah. record. Absolutely wonderful record. Okay. Last track. And, uh, and this is when you, uh, you get to be uh, a tastemaker. Please tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like mm-hmm. them to hear, please. Now, um, I'm going to take this question and point the spotlight straight at me. Do it. And say, uh, I um, one of the big influences of my life was an American artist called Todd Rundgren, who's a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and uh, produced people like Patti Smith, Meatloaf, XTC. Um, and right from when I was like uh, 14 or 15, I heard one of his records. And that was the moment that I thought, I have to know how to do this. I have to know how to do the arrange the backgrounds, how to choose the right echo, how to write a song, how to kind of... Um, yeah, try and make people feel the way I'm feeling. So his his influence, uh, uh, about five years ago, I made an album under the moniker Astral Drive, which 
Todd fans go like, oh, they know what that means. But it was a sort of a, a love letter to those songs uh, in my teenage years when I was just like in awe of every record he made. Um, and th- on this Astral Drive record, the lead single is called Summer of 76, which anybody who's um, in, in the UK in 1976, it was this amazing summer. It's been this summer, people have talked about it again, but I was 16 you're discovering music, you're discovering sex, you've got swimming pools if you're lucky. Every day was sunshine all day long. I was cycling around my hometown without any shoes on, you know, just like like a, um, you know, just wild and free. And so I wrote a song called Summer of 76 on this Astral Drive record, which is a sort of a mini autobiography it's got where i grew up what was happening i went to london to try and make it and my life sort of changed a bit um but then the melancholy of always looking back at this one time in my life where i didn't have a mortgage i did what i did have a job but you know there's just no worries it was just you, it came to the evening you went to hang out with your friends and just having the time of your life. So, so summer of 76 got this kind of Todd Rundgren-ish slight Motown um, and it's got some hooks. So hopefully I can turn on some of your podcast listeners to the, to the joy of astral drive. Wonderful. We'll make that really easy as well because we put together a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast with all of the tracks on there. So people can go and listen to that. And, uh, people need to know more about what you're uh, about to be releasing. What's what's happening? What's happening with me is um, my album comes out September the second, and it's it's a solo album. I've had this project called Astral Drive, which I mentioned, which was a Todd Rundgren homage. I know, very very niche. The um, with the solo album, this is the solo album is also a kind of homage to the to glam rock, to ELO, 70s influences, where when I would just want to make music that I want to make, that's sort of how it comes out. So um, the album is called Somewhat Tongue-in-Cheek, Now That I Have Your Attention, because as one of the 10,000 albums being released tomorrow, mine will be one of them, and I'm... realizing i'm probably not going to get anyone's attention i've had your attention today Stu, and i really appreciate that it's been a lot of fun and if people want to keep up to speed with you phil where's the best place to do that i'm on what i like to call instagram a phone and it's, <laughs> it's it's for the old people from the 70s i mean and that's something i would take to dragons then <laughs> <laughs> i'm loving that yeah oh nice nice um, and I am, you know, at Phil Thornalley. No dots or anything. Good luck with spelling Thornalley. Most people get it wrong. Well, we'll make um, it easy as well. We'll tag you in the, all the posts when this podcast comes out. So if people haven't found you already, then they can do it by doing that. So uh, yeah. um, well, I appreciate that. Phil, it's been a real joy talking records with you, mate. Thank you so much for your I time. I could go on forever. They're great questions. And I love talking. I know you love talking about music. I love talking about music. I could... We could do it all again and be completely different answers, but it's all good. I'll tell it? you what, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll run it back. What we do is uh, every now and again we get guests back on, but we we change these these questions to to gigs, and, uh, and we base it all around gigs, first gigs, and excellent, uh, and and, and yeah, yeah. Like, first like emotionally, sort of seeing gigs that like change emotionally, that just absolutely just blow your mind so so uh let's uh let's let's get you back on and do one of them soon emotion my friend that is that's what we're trying to do with music is you, whether you know it or not you're trying to tap into someone's emotions 100 um, yeah. percent. thanks to my absolute pleasure there you go oh i know i suppose phil had a little natter afterwards. Definitely going to get Phil back on and, and talk gigs. Uh, I mean, imagine that. Like, straight out of Suffolk, straight into to working with Mickey Most. Like, what 
what a moment, what an opportunity. And, and obviously, you know, getting your head down and, and cracking on there has presented a lifetime of opportunities and, and yeah, and a lifetime of, 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 of time immersed, uh, in the, the beautiful thing that is music. Uh, you lot are bloody beautiful for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much. Um, it really does mean a lot. Uh, it's super appreciated. Please pay your, your, your dollar a month and, uh, and come over and, and, and do the live hangouts and, and because the next one's going to be songs that, uh, emotional songs. So that's going to be a lovely chat. And I just want so many of you to, to just drop in and, uh, and, and just have a chat. You don't have to. You can pop up on the Zoom and have your camera off and your mic off and just listen in. But it'd be great to, you know, if you want to get involved and get on an episode, then, uh, yeah, let's just chat about, you know, songs and experiences and just, yeah, the wonderful thing that is his music. Um, right, I'm back next time. As mentioned, everything else you need to know, uh, off the beat and track podcast.com. Be excellent to each other. Uh, thanks again. Big thanks to Terry for facilitating this interview. Uh, and I'll see you next time. Much love. Bye-bye. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Eat him up.